0: welcome to the education marketing leader podcast with chris raposo if you're looking to dive into the latest industry insights draw inspiration from education success stories or just want to sharpen your marketing skills you're in the right place here we bring you a diverse range of voices from experts and leaders in the field offering you a unique blend of professional development and practical strategies whether you want to understand your audience better stay updated with the latest
1: tech trends in marketing, or expand your professional network, we've got you covered. So while you're driving on your morning commute or winding down after a busy day,
0: let's explore the dynamic world of education marketing together.
1: Say somebody listened to this episode, he he or she, they're convicted to go into 2024 and provide a better web experience what are some of the immediate steps that they can take
0: of course i would say like the biggest thing you can do is like start over (laughs) my dream for 2024 is start over but uh, first thing you can do truly go find your pages and run them through a readability assessor so hemingway app is great Um, grammarly does a great job of this And take a, just get the score and rewrite those pages aiming for a grade eight or grade seven to grade nine reading level. If you're struggling with that rewrite, and a lot of people are, because we're not all writers, ChatGPT is very good at simplifying something that's already been written. Like it's actually exceptionally good. So um, do that first, like go to all your most complex pages, take the readability score, do a rewrite, whether it's you or you with your um, AI BFF, and update the content.
1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Education Marketing Leader. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Day Kibbilt from Ology. Day. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much Chris. I'm I'm so glad you invited me and I'm extra glad because knowing that you speak German, you said my last name perfectly. So thank awesome.
1: you. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> usually, usually I double check with people before I um I start the episode on the pronunciation, but I just winged it this time so I'm glad I I Oh, I... uh, it
0: was perfect. It's 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 Latvian actually, but I find anyone on this side of the Atlantic really struggles with it, it myself included. So You did great.
1: We're starting off the episode good. So
0: we're winning already.
1: (laughs) Hey, I found out about you during Hyatt Web. You did a presentation there. Um, my boss Kat and I were really impressed with the presentation, and we just started to connect with each other, met you in person at AMA Higher Ed Live, and I just wanted to have you on the show because you Mm -hmm. are a thought leader in the industry. And you have a passion for something we're going to talk about today but well, we'll get into mm-hmm. that a little bit later i just want to do a little bit of a introduction about yourself as i did my research um i noticed that you have a bachelor's degree in international business from the Hochschule at children of all places
0: and, <laughs> i know
1: <laughs> and you have a master's in applied statistics from penn state and you've worked in hiring <laughs> the last ten years, so let's talk about your journey a little bit. Of all places, how did you end up in Germany?
0: I um actually, I mean, it's an it's an interesting story. So my my grandparents are from four different countries. Uh, one of them is Germany. So on my dad's side, his mom was German and his dad was Latvian. That's where Kivils comes from. Um, it is not my married name. I didn't change my name um and then on on my mom's side my grandfather was is italian and my grandmother was um venezuelan so germany the german influence has always been a part of my upbringing because of my dad and his mom um when the time came to go to university and this is what the the talk was that you saw i really struggled with the u.s university system I was living in Mexico at the time, I failed to apply correctly, and I basically had no options. So when we were deciding what am I going to do, my dad was like, how about Germany? And so we Googled it. We tried to find programs that started in English because I didn't speak German at the time. And we found a couple and we sent a bunch of emails and Hochschule Fortwangen was the first one to answer. So they got me. (laughs) Um, after that a lot of things happened I ended up moving to Penn State with my husband for him to start his PhD program and that's why I, I was at Penn State I studied at Penn State but I also started my higher ed career there and I wish I had some kind of moving reason for why higher ed and why I got into this industry in the first place but really it was a very practical reason I'm married to a, a would-be professor or will-be professor, and if he's going to be a professor for the rest of his life, I need to work at the university, too, because we're going to have to move, and I don't want to be um, a you know a trailing spouse without options, so I uh, started working at Penn State, and that was in 2010, I believe, and the rest is history. Yep.
1: Yeah, another analogy. So you're doing great work there um, with the insights from coming from higher ed. So you're not just Mm -hmm. uh, an advisor or a partner coming from the outside in, talking about all these wonderful things that higher ed institutions should do, but you're actually speaking from experience. And Mm -hmm. we'll talk about some of the barriers the higher ed content may um, have for international students and non traditional students and some of the Issues there may be on higher ed websites that keep um, potential students from applying to prospective universities. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you told us a little bit about not getting into the university system in the United States. That's why you had to pivot to Germany. Could you mm-hmm. elaborate on that a little bit more? Because I know you talk about it in your talks um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: at, during higher ed conference, but some people may have not heard those. So, from a, yeah. can you talk about that a bit?
0: So first I'll do a plug. If you haven't heard that story, go to the Cascade User Conference because um, I will be talking about that. Um, you're so welcome, Chris. You're so welcome. Thank you. <laughs> um, but what essentially happened, I had always been a very high-achieving student from birth. Um, from birth, I, I say that jokingly, but also in when I was three years old, I started school, and by the time I was four, I was ready for first grade. I was very academically motivated, and that was basically my personality. Um, it still kind of is, to be honest. So uh, when, whenever, wherever we moved, my family moved many times. I've lived in six different countries. No, my dad was not in the military. He was just a serial entrepreneur um, with big dreams. So we moved around a lot, and every time we moved, I had to start over, but I ended up achieving academically very fast. So there were these big disruptions in my childhood about where i was what culture i was in what language i was living in but still i managed to get really good grades so um by the time i was in high school we were in mexico city and i was in the international baccalaureate program and you know i'm thinking i'm a smart kid i'm going to get into any school i want but my my parents never went to university they um they had high school diplomas from Venezuela, from I, I'm not going to reveal, I don't know the math, like in the 70s, the 80s, I don't know. They hadn't continued their education. They were not familiar with the university system in the U.S. And we weren't even living in the U.S. at the time. So we were not. So I wasn't familiar with the U.S. university system either. So um, because I was in the international baccalaureate program, I was I was in a very prestigious high school in Mexico. So my peers and their parents uh, and their families, they knew what was going on, right? So the information that I got was kind of like third party, like where my friends were applying to university. And you can imagine, right, prestigious university, prestigious school in Mexico, international baccalaureate students, everyone's dropping Harvard. MIT, Cornell, like these are the schools that my peers were applying to. And of course, there's also the schools on TV. So I'm like, of course, of course I'm going to MIT. I am, I mean, I'm too good for Harvard. I'm going to MIT, right? So <laughs> that's literally, I applied to Harvard, I applied to MIT, and I applied to Cornell because my crush at the time, who is now my husband, had also applied to Cornell. So, you know, I I spent the most time writing an essay about how I'm this global citizen and I have all these perspectives because I've lived in all these countries and I've had to start over so many times and it's made me really grow up and realize I know nothing, whatever. So I'm like really proud of this essay. I'm like, how could they reject me with this essay? Like I'm great for this, like for this spot. Like I'm really gonna take advantage of it. Again, I really liked to study and learn and do, So I sent that and I sent um, copies of my IB grades and the things that I kind of had in the moment. And of course I got three letters back. Of course I didn't get into any of these places. And it wasn't until much later in my life that it dawned on me that the reason I didn't get into these places is because I didn't send them all my transcripts. Cause now I'm an admissions professional. I've been working in higher ed for many years. Um, the majority of the time that I was in higher ed or I am have been in higher ed was admissions counselor. I'm like, wait a minute, you sent them a TOEFL, you sent them your IB grades, but you didn't send them ninth grade, 10th grade. You didn't send any of the other stuff they asked for. And I'm like, how could I have missed that? Like how, how is something that to us in this world seems so obvious, not at all obvious to a 17 year old girl in Mexico City, trying to navigate the system all by herself because she didn't have parents or resources to to tell me what I needed to do. So that's when I started really getting critical and picky and obsessive about website content, especially admissions website content. Uh, It came from that personal experience of if I think about me objectively, if I think about a student who has gone through what that student went through and the many places that she was at and still was able to excel academically and, and otherwise, um, like this would be the kind of student I want to admit to my institution, but you know, I didn't, I didn't get in. So I started feeling very critical of how websites present this content because mm-hmm. I missed it.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah and you were like extremely inclined so you weren't like just aloof you didn't know what to do right Right. pretty smart right it, if you would have found it
0: yeah so, that's so, right
1: so um and you're i'm sure you're not the only one the only person that struggles with that with that admissions process to figure out what exactly needs to be done where to find it on a higher website how many steps you to take to actually get to that information is one of the issues that you talked about during one of your talks that i watched Mm -hmm. um are there any stats you can share with um the broader audience to see hey this is actually a real issue for potential students and that's a hindrance for people to actually get to your school especially with the uh dropping numbers of traditional age students with the looming enrollment cliff right it's really important to get people through that admissions Mm -hmm. process efficiently What are some of the stats? Yeah,
0: there's, I mean, there's a lot of research, a lot more recently on this, and and that's very encouraging. Um, But I will say there isn't really research on the people that that don't even try right so we as the folks writing content for websites need to understand that there's a whole population of students or potential students that don't even try, right? So they're not in our funnels. We don't know if they convert or not. We have no idea, right? Because they know, like they see this huge mountain and they're not, they're not prepared to even try to tackle it, right? But then of the students that are thinking of college and are kind of in this pipeline, um, some of my favorite stats are, um, Niche put out the 2023 senior enrollment survey, uh, and they found that 57% of seniors, 57% don't even apply because of how complicated they perceive the admissions process to be. And well, it is complicated, right? But it's we make it even more complicated with how we present the information. Um, Another study by RNL, the 2023 College Planning and Student Emotions Report, they found that 86% of high school seniors uh, report that they're really stressed often. And a lot of that is what's happening in their lives. But uh, when they kind of dug into the reasons, 71% of those 86% say that one of their biggest worries is forgetting to submit something important in their college applications. That's what happened to me. So uh, look at these percentages, like 86, 71, right? 57% don't even apply. These are big numbers. And if we know this process is complicated and if if we know it's causing distress, let's fix it, right? Um, The last that I'll share is a web study that Ology did. So my company did 2023 as well. And this one's really interesting because um, there's a segment of this study that focused on language. And that's really what I really obsess about because language is something that we can change with no technical requirements, right? We don't need a new CMS. We don't need new technology. We don't need a lot of user research. to just write simply, right? So um, when when we kind of ask prospective students or high school students, um, about some admission, some terms, website terms in the enrollment process, like terms like financial aid, admissions, graduate. And uh, one of my particular finding that I find really interesting is the word undergraduate. Because when you ask them, hey, do you know what undergraduate means? About a third of the students say they don't flat out, I have no idea what this means. And that percentage is like 23% white students don't know what it means. But something upward to like, 39% of students that are low income don't know what it means. Mm -hmm. And when you think about, okay, well, 23%, 39%, there's still, that that means that there's still like 60 or 70% of students that do know what it means. Well, in our study, we actually, if they said they knew what it meant, we went a step further and we're like, okay, define it. Tell us what it is. And what they typed in were things like didn't graduate, not enough credits to graduate, right? Like, didn't get a bachelor's degree. And I'm like, well, yeah, technically you don't have a bachelor's degree yet, but that's not what it means. And how many of our higher ed websites use the word undergraduate as like a main navigation element, mm-hmm. right? Like it's it's like, I'm supposed to know when I go to this website, oh, I am undergraduate. Yep. But like our study showed that's, they don't even know what it means, right? So there's there's these, like these stats kind of paint this picture. That it's not just me holding a grudge, <laughs> um, but a lot of students are being kept out of our institutions because of the content on our websites.
1: Absolutely, that's why it's good to run these um, this content that you create through apps like Hemingway to see what the readability level is. Yes,
0: yes. So if, you yes. Are, if
1: you're to write it on a fifth grade level, you're you have a better chance of people understand what you actually mean on there. But let's go back to what you said about. Um, students not able to find what they need on a higher ed website maybe the content is too complicated but they can't find it so what what are some of the things that um some of the issues that you see some of the things that higher ed marketers enrollment professionals could do should they create more content maybe to help
0: (laughs) that's you're baiting me no do not create more content like that that is our first like knee-jerk response it's oh you know students are confused let's make another page to explain it let's make a frequently asked questions page to answer the questions i i have thoughts and opinions and feelings about faqs you can ask me later um that is exactly the opposite of what we should be doing because what ends up happening is uh we're creating more cognitive load right so um if you're not super familiar with what that means basically it's the idea of equating a human brain to a computer, and this thought that we as human brains, like we also have limited capacity to process amount of amounts of information. So, uh, when there's too much coming in, we stop thinking clearly. We it takes longer for us to understand what it's saying. We don't take action, so, and sometimes, like even just completely abandon the task, which is happening to 57% of students, according to Niche. They don't even try, right? So um, we are good people at heart. That's why we work at higher ed, right? And when we're we're seeing and and we're realizing and we're noticing that folks are being excluded from our universities because of how complicated the process is, we're like, let's simplify it by explaining it more. And so we make more pages and more pages. And so what ends up happening, if you think about it for especially a student in a minority group or an international student in a minority group, you would have to read the regular pages for everyone, right? You have to read the admissions pages, you have to read your program pages, but then you have to go to more pages and you have to know that you have to go to more pages that are about your specific requirements like international study permits, TOEFL or IELTS or any other English language proficiency test, additional transcripts that have to be translated and notarized and mailed a certain way. And then on top of all of that, right, If you're like, we're gonna build a pathway because we wanna create access for X group, right? I also have to do all of that. So I have to do all the regular process plus the pathway process. And I have to know that I have to do that. So more is actually harmful. More is more cognitive load. What we need to do is less and explain it better. And language is a really easy way to make it simpler. So you were talking about Hemingway. App. that's a free website. You just make sure that the things that you're writing are at uh easy to consume reading level or readability score. And typically that's like seventh grade, eighth grade reading level. But if you go to your website right now, click a couple times to go to like any financial aid page, any truly pick one, any at random, put it in the Hemingway app. I guarantee you it's going to be at least a grade 11 reading level and what most people say and react to there is they should be able to understand grade 11 reading level right they're graduating high school but that is um that that is true if they were reading academic papers or doing homework Mm -hmm. but it isn't true when you're trying to get them to do a task Mm -hmm. and as adults when we are navigating government websites amazon And any shopping that we do online, anything that we want to figure out online, because these big companies uh, know this, everything that we navigate online is easy because they know this, because they want us to take action. So we need to just apply those same principles to our websites.
1: Yeah, and apply with empathy, right? Once you put it on there, make sure you put yourself- That's right. ...of that prospective student. Um, We were laughing about the Germany... um, university and i didn't give the context for people who don't know me i am i was born and raised in germany i went to high school in germany then i moved to the united states and one of the barriers for me to enrolling in university was the transcripts i had to get the transcript from germany then i had to translate the transcript from german to um to english done by a professional company and then um Send it to the to the university uh, and the college. So when I first moved to in Canada, a
0: sealed envelope, Chris. Sealed envelope, <laughs>
1: exactly. Me um, <laughs> moved to the United States at the age of twenty two, barely speaking a lick of English, um, barely making it. Right. So first of all, I didn't even. I didn't want to pay to get these things translated. Uh, let alone uh, drop money on college. So I went to school as a non-traditional student at the age of 30, right? Once I, when I was finally mentally ready to go down that path. um. Uh, so that was another one of those things. That's why we're, um, we were laughing about the Germany uh, thing earlier. Yeah. Just wanted to br- bring that up. Uh.
0: It's extremely complicated. It's, it's complicated in any direction, right? And most people don't realize how complicated something like translating a transcript is. Um, and that's one step in dozens of steps in this admission process
1: yeah um what are some of the common uh barriers or arguments that you've encountered when uh trying to convince institutions to improve their websites accessibility and how do you address them
0: um well one of them i just alluded to just now where uh a lot of people kind of put up this front like well they should be able to read complex language but There is so much research on that, uh, on readability and the effect that it has on action and comprehension. And even there's, uh, the Nielsen Norman group has a bunch of studies, but one of my favorite findings is that even high literacy users, readers, folks, people, um, prefer low, like content that's written in a simple way, because it makes us feel good. Like if you can read things fast and you're getting it, you're like, I'm this, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're vibing <laughs> with the content instead of, you know, having to sit down with a dictionary and like take it sentence by sentence. You know, we might do that in a, in a professional or academic setting, but we don't want to do that when we just need to figure out a transaction. Right. So Um, that's the biggest thing it's, well, they should be able to, I would say like that stance is very anti equity. So nobody should be saying that anymore because even, even if it's a student who, you know, grew up with English as a first language and has parents that went to college, um, you don't really know their circumstances. You don't know what else they're dealing with in their life. You don't know if they're taking care of their younger siblings or a grandparent, or they have to have a a part-time job to help the family make ends meet, they don't have time to sit down and read your website plus the nine other websites for the 10 schools that they're applying to and figure out sentence by sentence what it is that you're trying to say. No more of that. Um, that is not an appropriate stance. Um, the other thing, there's this, this perception of, um, well, if they can't figure out the process, they're not gonna succeed here. And, and again, I challenge that with Is that an equity perspective or is, is that like, is that you opening up the doors to your institution or is that you leaving people out? Mm -hmm. Um, And the third thing I'll I'll say is, is interesting because I I only realized this after being an admission counselor for a few years, there is this immense pride that admission counselors have in really understanding the process, right? Like we say this to each other, we say this to new admission counselors, like, Oh, it's going to take you at least two full cycles to get all the nuance of every complication we have in our requirements. Like we say that with pride. People that are, have been there for a long time are like, oh, yeah, I'm an expert because I know every exception, right? And yet that, you know, we turn around and we say to the 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds, like, figure it out, <laughs> And you figure it out in the four months that you have to figure this out, plus all the other schools that you're looking at, plus graduating from high school, becoming an adult, leaving your life, leaving your family, leaving your friends. It's, it's just, um, yeah, it's when you think about it this way, you're like, whoa, we, we really need to be empathy first, equity first, mm-hmm. and, and get away from this kind of pedestal we've put ourselves on and really think about what we're there to do and who we're there to serve.
1: Yeah, talking about the pedestal and the high barrier of entry that we uh, want for a higher institution, um, like you mentioned earlier, and I heard you uh, in, in preparation to this interview, I've listened to a couple of podcast episodes that you were on in the past, and I heard you talk to a gentleman about how, you know, if somebody can't apply, if somebody get can't make it through the process to apply to your higher at institution, they probably not going to succeed at your institution that kind of mindset but then you said something that was very interesting to me that probably half of the people that make it through the application process isn't because they figured it out it's because one of their parents was able to or a counselor was
0: <laughs> yeah. going
1: through it with them and helping them figure it out you know and yeah people have that are first generation students their parents don't know how to get through this right but if you have somebody who's you know, a legacy student, it's going to be a little bit easier for them to get in there. So it is that, that the equity inclusion that you just talked about that we have to keep in mind there that just because a kid, 18-year-old, 17 year old kid made it through the application process, you don't know who helped them um, with that. So it doesn't yeah, make any yeah. smarter the, 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 than the ones that that didn't make it in. Um, <laughs>
0: and it's, you know, it's, uh The first generation student is a great example of that. But I would even say students whose parents did go to college. How many years ago was that? Right? Yeah. 20 more. And so who remembers what they, like, exactly the process they followed 20 years ago? Like, they have a lot more context and they can figure it out. But the parents are the ones sitting with your websites in the dictionary and and building spreadsheets and and trying to make sense of it. And if you go to, there's this really awesome Facebook group called uh, uh, Paying for College 101, I believe. And it's a bunch of parents, like, you know almost forty thousand parents in there, so it's a really great sampling for us higher ed marketers to like see what they're talking about uh they they don't get it. like they're using each other to try to understand financial aid alone, and then there's all the other stuff they need to figure out. So we can do that. like we know the process. We can simplify it for everybody, and what's stopping us?
1: Yeah, exactly. So what's stopping us? Let's talk about about that as we bring the episode slowly to a close. Um, What's one of the most significant changes you've seen or you hope to see uh, in educational institutions approach to web accessibility in the next couple of years?
0: Yeah, so I, what I have seen, it's kind of all over the place. I more and more encounter a few pages on the, if, if you think about the entire website ecosystem of a university, right? I don't know how many pages there are, at least like hundreds, a hundred at least, right? You will find, you can find more today than before a few pages that you're like, oh, this is great. Like, well done, good job. You know, it's it's clearly laid out. The language is simple. It's nice to look at, easy to scan. Um, but when you click, more like you you dig because you need to find more specifics then you're back to like an old instance of something that is super hard to read and like I don't even care what it looks like if it looks different or not it's it's readability alone that you're like wait a minute so you only touch your top level pages and I get why because now I work at an agency and we do websites and you know, sometimes the budget didn't reach for, you know, the entire hundred pages and the, the project, it takes too long and everybody's doing their day job and no one has time to re- rewrite all the pages. I get it. Um, but I've seen some great efforts for some pages that does not translate through the entire user journey. Um, so I haven't seen a holistic approach and that's the problem, right? Because if you're, if, if, you know, you're landing pages that catch me from an ad, um, are awesome, but then I'm like serious and then I wanna apply to you and I'm I'm trying to do that and I can't, you just wasted your money and you just wasted my time. Um, So I've seen that. I What I haven't seen and I would love to see is a focus on less, not more. So we were talking about this before, more mm-hmm. adds cognitive load. What I have not seen are universities saying, how do we simplify instead of how do we add on top? <laughs> Um, how do we not make an FAQ and instead like really clean up the pages where this content should be? How do we, like, if we know, for example, there's going to be a, you know, there are QuestBridge applicants to our institution. How do we build an experience for them that includes all the information they need instead of all these different places where they need to go for information on top of their own pathway. Mm -hmm. So I haven't seen that focus, that holistic focus, Uh, by anyone yet that focuses on less that focuses on a specific student journey so if you're out if you're listening to this and you're out there I please show yourself to me send me a LinkedIn message because people ask me this all the time like who's doing it well and I'm like I don't know (laughs) I haven't found them yet so if you think it's you I want to meet you uh, but we're not doing enough. And, and the reason is because we're just we're not starting from scratch. So I would like to see a school start from scratch. And that feels overwhelming. But my advice would be pick a pick a segment, pick a student group, pick a focus and just read a Like, what would the process look like? What would the content for the process look like for that group? If you could start from scratch today, that's what I would want to see.
1: Very, very great advice. And I really um, encourage everybody who's doing it well, send they a message because she will amplify your institution. Uh, I
0: will. I will use you as my example.
1: Yeah. Say somebody listened to this episode, He, he or she, they're convicted to go into 2024 and provide a better web experience. What are some of the immediate steps that they can take to do that?
0: Yeah. So January 2nd, when you're back in your office, if you're one of those schools that's going to open that day, we are at Ology, and frankly, I'm going to be excited to start working again after so much family time. But uh, first thing you can do, truly go find your pages and run them through a readability assessor. So Hemingway app is great. That's like I think it's Hemingwayapp.com. Um, grammarly does a great job of this and take a just get the score and rewrite those pages aiming for a grade eight or grade seven to grade nine reading level if you're struggling with that rewrite and a lot of people are because we're not all writers chat gpt (laughs) is very good at simplifying something that's already been written like it's actually exceptionally good at that particular thing so Um, Do that first, like go to all your most complex pages, take the readability score, do a rewrite, whether it's you or you with your um, AI BFF, and update the content that doesn't require, um, that doesn't require any technical knowledge that doesn't require a lot of investment, it might require approval, because I know how universities work. And somebody from admissions is going to be like, well, you can't change this language, because then lawsuits will happen. Um, Lawsuits don't really happen that often. But if that's the case, um, get them to tell you specifically what it is in the language that can't be changed for lawsuit purposes. And one of the things that I've done is like, I write the simple content, I put it on the site first and then like at the bottom, I'm like, this is how we have to say it so our lawyers are happy. And like, just dump the shit in there. Um, Truly, like do that. Your your students would thank you for it. So do that first then you can start thinking about user research. I think that's really where everything starts. That does take resources, but it doesn't take big technical implementations, right? So can you work with a consultant? Can you work with a freelancer? Is there someone on your team that has a little bit of extra time um, that can really focus on uh understanding the journey of a particular segment so find groups of students that you can talk to ask them how did you find information did you understand it where were you looking what was a barrier where were you getting stuck what was really confusing and from there you're going to get this really holistic picture of what their needs are and when those needs are and what was a sticking point for them and then you can start changing copy and websites from that using that data right Um, of course I would say like the biggest thing you can do is like start over (laughs) my dream for 2024 is start over there. There's so much technology out there right now that is just incredible that you can use to show personalized dynamic content. Um, I'm pretty sure there's like AI integrated into something now that would generate content for students, depending on what They need. So look into that. Look into what's next for us. Like, what's our target goal of really personalizing this experience? But you can make an immediate impact with language. You're going to have to do the research for anything more than that. So start with those two things first and then implement something bigger.
1: Very good. Thank you so much for the pragmatic answer. Let's say somebody's taking you up on that, implementing that. They're doing a stellar job. They're way on their way to make it accessible. (laughs) They want to tell you about it. How can they get in touch with you?
0: Uh, LinkedIn is definitely the best spot to find me right now. I'm very active on LinkedIn. Uh, I post a lot of useful things uh, there. I I think they're useful. I hope. So find me with my name at at LinkedIn and I'd love to connect.
1: Awesome, Dave. Thank you so much for being part of the show today. I really appreciate your insights. I hope you have a happy new year.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much. You too.
1: Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show today. If you enjoyed it, don't keep it to yourself. Share with your friends in your network. And if you have a moment, I would really appreciate a review of the podcast. That'll help other people find the show as well. Tune in every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. when I release another episode. Take care now. Have a good one, friends.